Boy, I'm thankful for the Word of God. I was thinking about it as she sang that song. You know, for 4,000 years, Gentiles just sat in darkness. They'd look up towards heaven wonder who God was. And they'd wonder what He thought. And they'd wonder the things that He loved and what He valued. You know, you could pick up glimpses. The heavens declare the handiwork of God. We, we know that. But, but it ain't the same as having a Bible. They, they'd have to just look up and wonder, what does God, what does He love? What does He think? What does He say? What does He desire? And then for another, hey, listen, what a glorious thing that God spoke. Uh, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners hath spoken unto us by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son from heaven. Amen. And gave us a Bible. And then for another 1,600 years, there's bits and pieces. It, it wasn't gathered together in the way that uh, we have it today. And uh, there were, of course, complete copies of it gathered together. But uh, things were not what we would call standardized. For common people to just be able to hold a book in their hand and have the Word of God, the words of God. That's a precious thing, man. I, and we've never lived without it, you know. But imagine what it'd be like to know there's God, know that He exists, know that He desires certain things, loves certain things, hates certain things. He has to. He's, he's got a personality. And, and imagine just sitting back and wondering. And then think about us having this precious holy book and not learning it, not reading it, not studying it. Boy, I tell you, we take for granted having a Bible. What a precious thing it is. It's not always been that men of God could stand up and hold a book up in the air and say, everybody in the room, turn in your copy of the Word of God to this place. And what a precious thing it is to have a Bible. Amen. Turn in that Bible to Genesis chapter number 22 this morning. Genesis chapter number 22. What a blessing it is to be here today. I appreciate all the good singing. Didn't those teenage girls do a good job? That's one of my favorite songs. And uh, they didn't know that or they might not have sang it. Amen. But... They, I love that song, and uh, I appreciate their service for the Lord. Appreciate you being here today, and trust that God is going to speak to your heart. Genesis chapter 22, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. I think to most of us that have been raised with the Bible, and, and we'll probably already know, even when we begin reading, we'll know exactly what's taking place in this chapter. But if you don't, there's a man by the name of Abraham. Uh, Abraham has been promised of God that God, in his old age, would give Abraham a son. And that from that son a nation would be born, and that through that nation all the earth would be blessed. And God has answered, He's given this son to Abraham. But then something very unusual happens in chapter number 22 of the book of Genesis. The Bible says, It came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, Get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. 
So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. The angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. The angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing it is to be here. Lord, we've already had church just in the short time that we've been here. You've stirred our hearts. You've convicted us. Lord, you've challenged and charged us to yield ourselves more unto you. Lord, you've given us a heart of gratitude for your word. And we already, Lord, have so much to thank you for. But now as we turn our attention to the preached word, I pray that this most important moment in our Sunday morning would not be filled with distractions, Lord, uh, but rather that we would uh, train our hearts upon you, that we would listen diligently to the word of God, and that we'd not look to the left and right and wonder who else it could apply to, but instead let us bow our hearts and our minds before you and let us yield ourselves unto you and receive with meekness the engrafted word. Let us ask, Lord, what are you saying to me this morning? And let us deal directly with heaven. And we know we'll be the better for it. We know you'll receive glory, Lord. We know that when you're pleased, it's better for us. So, Lord, we ask that all these things that are done be well-pleasing in thy sight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want us to notice for a moment this morning, before we get into the message, a phrase that is used in verse number one of this chapter. Now, as we said a few moments ago, you probably are already familiar and no doubt even in the first moments that we began to read our text, you knew exactly what was about to transpire in this passage. But I was telling my Sunday school class this morning, if you don't know the Bible in context, you don't know the Bible at all. If you don't know the context of what's transpiring in Scripture, then you may be able to go through and cherry-pick things out of there. That's a pretty dangerous way to live, amen? I would a lot rather eat a table of food that's been spread by someone that I trust than go cherry-pick things from here and there, not knowing what I may be doing with them and how I may be interpreting them. And so, uh, if we don't know the Bible in context, we really don't know it at all. And verse number 1 says something very interesting that I want you to see. Verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. And I began when I read that, I thought, you know, isn't that interesting the way the Holy Ghost lays emphasis on some things that have been happening in the life of Abraham. It just simply says, after these things. Well, I wonder, reckon where we could find out what these things are. I believe if we go to the chapter before this, we might learn a little bit about what these things are. 
I want you to turn back to chapter 1 with me, and I want you to notice some things before we get into the preaching. Now, chapter number 1 covers something in the neighborhood of the span of 30 years. And so the things that are recorded in chapter 21 are, are not necessarily things that are happening just at a moment's notice, but the Holy Ghost details and records these events for us and uses it as a backdrop for what God does in chapter Number 22, and I began to think what had been going on in the life of Abraham that the Holy Ghost wants us to notice. Well, there's basically three events that occur in chapter 21. I won't read all of them or all of the, the portions of them, but, but I just want to read a few verses to give you a synopsis of what's going on. Chapter 21 begins with the birth of Isaac. It says in verse number 1, And the Lord visited Sarah, that's the wife of Abraham, as he had said, And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. You say, preacher, what are some of these things that serve as a backdrop for chapter 22? Well, I would say, number one this morning, we see that in chapter 21, Abraham's faith was instigated. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? I mean God was growing Abraham in his faith. God had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to give him a son. This seemed like a very unlikely thing. Abraham is an old man at this stage in his life. The time of fathering children and for Sarah, the time of bearing children is behind them. The chance that God occurred, that this could occur naturally was beyond the ability of human intervention. But the things that are impossible with man are possible with God. And God gave a promise to Abraham that he was going to have a son. And sure enough, I like the way the Bible says, says that it says at the set time of which God had spoken in. You know, God's always on time. It's not always your time or my time, but He's always on time. And He did it exactly like He said. No doubt this buoyed and bolstered Abraham's faith. He had been growing and learning to trust God in a greater way. So we see that his faith was instigated. Look down with me at verse number 9 of chapter 21. Uh, some uh, 12 years have passed in, in, in this time, or not 12 years, but uh, Ishmael is 12 years old at this time. Uh, but some few days have passed since Isaac has been born. And the Bible says this in verse number 9. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian. Now that's Ishmael. Ishmael is also the son of Abraham, though he's not reckoned in the plan of God for Israel as a people. And so Sarah is seeing this son of Abraham and her handmaid Hagar, the Egyptian, uh, which had been born unto Abraham, mocking. Who was he mocking? Well, he was mocking Isaac. And I think what's implied here is not just he was, he was laughing at him, but rather that he was making sport of him, that he was abusing him, mistreating him. The Bible says in verse 10, Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in the sight of, in Abraham's sight because of his son, because of Ishmael. He loved Ishmael. He didn't want Ishmael to have to be banished from their home. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. 
Now, to understand everything that's going on here, it's important to understand that there is some symbolism that is at play in this passage. Now, that's not to say that these are not literal events that happened literally as the Bible records them literally. But it is to say that Ishmael was significant in the life of Abraham. Ishmael represented things that are performed through the energy or ability of the flesh. To give you a little background of why Ishmael is even here, God had given this promise to Abraham that he was going to give him a son. And Abraham and Sarah, not believing that God was able to, decided to take the matter into their own hands. And Sarah gave her handmaid Hagar to her husband Abraham. Abraham went in unto her and she conceived and bare this son by the name of Ishmael. In other words, they tried to do through their own strength what God sought to do through His divine strength. And forever and always after this point, Ishmael is representative of our flesh, of our depending on us, of our trusting in us. But here in chapter 21, what do we find? We find that Abraham reaches a place where, you know what he learns? He learns that the old son and the new son can't live in the same house. Can I just say to you this morning, this ain't my preaching, but I'm going to do a little bit of it right here. Hey, the old man and the new man, they ain't going to get along as long as they're in this same tabernacle. We're going to have to choose which one we're going to prefer. We're going to have to choose which one that we're going to give respect to. We're going to have to choose which one that we're going to listen to. Abraham had to make a choice here. He couldn't have a happy home when he had both these boys here. And so he decides, uh, well, Sarah helps him decide. Some of you ladies say amen to that. Sarah helps him decide that the best thing for their home would be to just go ahead and cast Ishmael and his mother Hagar out of the home. But now think about it, think about it in a, in a symbolic sense. He's taking that element in his home that afflicts this child of promise and he's casting it out. I'd say this, that Abraham, his faith was instigated, but we also see that his flesh was irritated. In other words, that part of him, that natural perspective that Abraham had was persecuted, was afflicted, was set aside so that there could be happiness and harmony in the home. Can I tell you, hey, listen, not only is God growing his faith, but God is purging him of the fleshly influences in his life. Hey, listen, it's good that we grow up, but it's also important that we grow clean. It's good that, I mean, listen, I'm glad, I'm thankful for all that God's doing in our church. I'm thankful for what God's doing in your life. But it's not enough just to grow up. We've also got to be growing cleaner in our walk with Lord. And that's what we find here. His flesh was irritated. Then look at verse number 22 of chapter 21. It says this, And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham. Now, Abimelech is a Gentile. He is a, 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 he is a Philistine, and he is dwelling close to Abraham. And so Abimelech comes to Abraham, and this is what he said, God is with thee in all that thou doest. Now therefore swear unto me here by God that thou wilt not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son, but according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, thou shalt do unto me and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. So three events are listed, the birth of Isaac, the casting or banishment of Ishmael, but then we also see the blessing on the life of Abraham. You know what we find here? Even his neighbors are coming to Abraham and saying, you know, we can see that God is in what you're doing. We can see God at work in your life. I mean, these are people that don't even know who God is, but they can see God working in the life of Abraham. And we could say it this way, that in chapter 21, his faith was instigated, his flesh was irritated, but we see that his favor was illustrated. In other words, God has showed up and worked in his life in such a big way that it is undeniable. 
Now let me tell you, I want my life to look like that. I want to have a life where God's growing me and developing me and, and teaching me to trust Him more. I want to have a life where God is helping me get victory over the sins that I have in my life and over the infirmity of the flesh and teaching me not to lean on self and, and teaching me only to lean upon Him. And I want to have a life where the favor of God is so palpable, so visible, that even folks that don't even know God can tell something different about my life by the way that they see God working. The Bible says it was after these things. After God has been working so meaningfully in Abraham's life. Abraham had grown in the Lord. There's no doubt in chapter 21. But in order for him to grow more deeply, God was going to have to call him to a greater level of faith. Now here's, humanly speaking, what we would expect. We would expect God to show up in chapter 22 and say, Abraham, doing a good job, son. Just keep it going. We would expect God to show up and say, you know, Abraham, you've been doing so well. Why don't you take a little time off? Uh, you, you know, Abraham, everything's going so well. If you need me, you holler, but I'm just going to leave you be. But you know, that's not how God does in our life. When God works in our life, you know what that leads to? It leads to God working in our life. Uh, the only way for God to be silent in our life is for Him to be grieved in our life. Uh, when we let Him work in our life, that doesn't mean it's time to check out and take the day off. That means it's time to double down and see God do greater things in our life. If God was going to grow him more deeply, he'd have to be called to a greater level of faith. And really, faith is the key word. When we approach Genesis chapter 22, you know, it's easy to think of this chapter as a chapter that's about sacrifice. That's about a willingness to, to deprive ourselves of something. But that's not what this chapter is about. Listen to how the Hebrews writer characterizes what Abraham did in this chapter. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, by faith, that's key, by faith, not by selflessness, right? Not by self-deprivation, but by faith. Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now let's just, before we get preach that, just stop and think about it. God has told Abraham that Isaac is where his future lay. God has told Abraham that Isaac is where all of his promises are vested. God has told Abraham that he would give him this son Isaac. God has indeed given him Isaac. Isaac is a blessing in his life. It is a token of God's favor in his life. And then God shows up and says, Abraham, I want you to take that little boy and I want you to lay him on an altar and I want you to kill him. Now, why would Abraham do that? Why would he be willing to? Was it because he loved God so much that he said, if you need to take Isaac, I'll give him to you? Well, I hope Abraham loved him that much, but that's not what the Bible says. Did he do that because he said, you know, God's been so good to me. I mean, how inappropriate it would be. How, how rude it would be of me. All God wants is my son, and, and how could I deny him when he's done so much in my life? That I, I hope he'd think that. I, I hope I'd think that. I don't know if I would, but, but that's not why he did it. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven nineteen, this is why he did it. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a fear. Can I tell you what was running through the mind of Abraham when he was walking up Mount Moriah's hill and when he was carrying that wood and carrying that blade? Can I tell you what he was thinking? He was thinking to himself, God, if you want me to kill him, I'll kill him. But all that's going to mean is you're going to have to raise him from the dead because your promises never fail. I began to think about this and what it signifies in my life and in yours. God needed Abraham to trust him completely with Isaac. This was no small thing. 
we could say this, that this is not a passage that is about sacrificing to God's desire, but rather it is a passage that is about surrendering to God's dealings. It's not about saying, I'm unworthy to have these blessings in my life, nor is it about saying, well, God don't want me to have them, so I guess they're bad for me. But rather it is about saying, the things in my life that I love and value, do I trust God with them? Is He a trustworthy God? I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. Is your Isaac on the altar? Is your Isaac on the altar? Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, uh, that's a snappy title, but what does it mean to me? I don't have anyone in my life named Isaac. I don't have a child named Isaac. I, but what does it mean to have your Isaac on the altar? And I want you to notice three thoughts with me this morning, and we'll be done. And the first of them is the significance of Isaac. It's interesting that God asks for Isaac. I'll tell you that if I was writing Scripture, and we know that Scripture was not written in the sense of a literary work, but it was recorded in the sense that the Holy Ghost records inerrantly the details that have transpired. It is a literal book, and we are to understand it literally. Uh, but if I was writing the Bible, if I just sat down and took a pen of human intuition in hand and, and began to write this, I'll tell you, when God comes to ask Abraham for something, I would have had him ask for anything other than Isaac. The most irrational thing God could ask for would be the very thing that God Himself had given to Abraham. Why? I mean, he could have come, he could have asked for riches, he could have asked for land, he could have asked for his time, he could have asked for his love, for his devotion, but instead he says, I want Isaac. Why did God want Isaac from Abraham? Well, I thought to myself this, you know, Isaac represented some things in Abraham's life. And this really is the key to the thought this morning. Isaac is not just Isaac, Isaac is more than Isaac. And there's probably some things in your life that may not be similar to Isaac in the sense of temporal uh, perspective. It may not be a child. It, it may not be a son or a grandchild. Or maybe it will be. But it's really not about the trappings of who Isaac is, but rather what Isaac represents. What was God asking for when He asked for Isaac? Well, listen to how the Lord commands Abraham in verse 2. He said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. Now, don't ever skip over anything in the Word of God. Don't just ignore it. Don't assume it's there just to fill up room on a page because every word in this King James Bible is precious and inspired and inerrant and preserved and perfect and exactly what it ought to be. When God says, whom thou lovest, He's pointing something out to us. And I would say this in our life, that Isaac represented, number one, the things that are precious to us. The things that we love. The things that we value. We all have various things that we value and things that are uninteresting to us. We all have things that God has blessed us with in our life that, that we guard jealously and that we protect and, and that we, we count precious and valuable to us. And you know, God doesn't begrudge those things. Oftentimes, the very things that can become the pitfalls of our life are things that God has first permitted us to have in the first place. Can I remind you, hey, it was God that gave Isaac to Abraham in the first place. That had Abraham been jealous, had he been selfish, had he said, no, I'll not give Isaac to you, what he would have been doing is making an idol out of something, even something good and even something a blessing in his life. Now, I don't want to get ahead in my preaching, but can I remind you that Isaac walked up that hill and he walked back down that hill. 
The issue is not that God begrudged Abraham having Isaac, but the issue is that God wanted Abraham to trust Him with that thing. I can't promise you that the things that you yield to God that you'll always keep. It may be that it's better for you to not have those things than to have those things. But I can promise you this. You can trust God with the most precious things in your life. We exhorted a little bit. I don't know if it was Sunday or Wednesday, but we was talking to the... Uh, I guess it was last Sunday, Miss Connie uh, was singing about having a testimony of being raised in church. I, I hope my kids have one of those boring testimonies. Amen? I don't want them having one of those testimonies that takes 45 minutes. Hey, I, I, listen, if you got one like it, I love it. I want to hear it every time that you tell it. But that ain't the testimony I want for my kids. I want my kids to have a boring testimony about growing up in children's church and getting saved when they're little and serving God. That's the kind of testimony that I want for my, for my kids. But we exhorted, we, we, we challenged and charged our young families a little bit. Listen, that's what we're working for. We're asking God to save our children and to not just save them from their sins, but save them for His glory, to use their lives in a way that pleases Him and that honors Him. And can I tell you, listen, sometimes it's hard to trust God with your kids. Sometimes it's hard to trust Him, not because He fails us, but because we fail Him. It's the infirmity of our flesh. And what we're doing here, investing in their life, I'm not promising no kid's going to go wayward. I'm not saying your kid's not going to mess up. I'm not saying my kid's not going to mess up. But I'm saying what we're doing by raising them in church is putting them on the altar, committing them to God, saying, God, if this is the right way to raise them, then I'll raise them for Your glory. It may not be what the world likes. It may not be what the world values, but it's what You say is right, so I'm willing to do it. We're putting our children in the arms of the Lord. I believe this. I believe we can trust God with our kids. I believe you can trust Him with your marriage. I believe you can trust Him with your finances. I believe you can trust Him with your job. I believe you can trust Him with your home. I believe you can trust Him with all these things. And why is that significant? Because these are things that are precious to us. Often when something becomes precious to us and we begin to operate in the energy of the flesh and not in faith, we begin to take those things and try to protect them ourselves. In doing so, we're putting those things in greater peril than they ever would be in if we just put them in God's hands. I'd say this, Isaac represented the things that are precious. But then notice what it says, verse number 2. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. Can I remind you that Abraham's entire plan for his life is vested in his son Isaac. He has no plan B. He has no other options. The plan of God as it has been laid out for him is all centered around this young boy. And for him to be willing to take all those plans and put them on an altar and lay a knife to them, if that's what God desires, was an immense step of faith. Can I ask you something? You're willing to trust God with the things that are precious, but are you willing to trust Him with the things that are planned for you? Are you willing to put your life in God's hands and say, Lord, I don't know where this takes me. I don't know what it demands of me. I don't know what is going to be asked of me. But God, this is your will and I'm willing to trust you. I don't know where it will take me. I don't know what it will mean. But I know that if I'm in the heart and center of your will, I'm right where I need to be. And by the way, Abraham didn't have a plan beyond Isaac. And now his plan for Isaac was to lay him on that altar and to open his throat. He didn't have anything else lined out or worked out. But this was what God asked of him. And Abraham figured he was better trusting God with, with him, Abraham not having a plan, than he was entrusting himself with him having a plan. 
Listen, I'm not advocating unpreparedness. I'm not saying that God desires for us to to be reckless or, or, or cavalier in the planning of our life. But I am saying this, hey, the best laid plans, right? God just sits back and laughs. You can sit down and you can plan it all out. You can have it all worked out. What was it that the boxer said? Everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth. Uh, listen, one thing can come along in your life and unravel thread by thread that whole plan that you've got. Can I tell you what's far better? is to commit yourself to the Lord's care and to trust in Him. It doesn't mean being reckless. It doesn't mean being unprepared. It doesn't mean not having a plan. But it does mean being willing to say, Lord, this is my plan and I've thought to it and I've prayed to it and I've committed to it. But God, my life is yours. It's not my own. And so I'm giving this plan to you. If it meets your approval, if it's according to your pleasing, then we'll carry it out. But Lord, any changes you want, everything's written in pencil. You just go ahead and change. Are you willing to trust God with things that are planned in your life? Uh, there's been a great many people that woke up one day and they had everything laid out and before the sun set, their life was in pieces. Abraham is a man that's trusting God with the plan. But then I thought about this. He says this, verse 2, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Now this is Isaac. This is not Ishmael. This is not the son of Abraham's oversight. This is not the product of his self-reliance. This is the son that God has promised. This, I think, was the central thought in Abraham's mind. He had to reconcile God's immutable promises with what seemed like an impossible situation. Very simply, he looked at it and said, I don't understand how God's going to do this, but I believe God keeps his promises. And so if God has me kill this boy, God's going to have to raise him from the dead because the promises of God are more immutable and sure than the laws of life and death. In other words, the promise of God was seemingly jeopardized at this moment. It didn't look like God was going to keep His promise. But Abraham said, I'm going to trust God above my circumstances. And I'm going to trust that His promises always hold. Can I tell you, sometimes we find ourselves in a game of spiritual chicken in our life. You ever found yourself in a place where you're trying to trust God and you're trying to lean on Him, but it feels like the walls are closing in. It feels like the deadlines are hastening towards you. It feels like the options are dropping off one side and off the other. And the whole time you're trying to hold to God's hand and trust in His promises and lean upon His goodness. And the whole time it's like everything's just leaning in on you, trying to get you to give up. And take matters in your own hands. That's where Abraham's at. I'll tell you this, that was the longest walk of his life up that mountain. Can you imagine the whole time he's sitting there and, and he probably on one hand, he's sitting there thinking God always keeps his promises. I know I can trust him. He's never lied before. And then on the other hand, his flesh probably reared up and said, now Abraham, that's, uh, that's, that's silly talk. That's foolish talk. There ain't no way. How's God going to keep his promises if you go up there and kill him? And on one side and on the other and back and forth and back and forth. But Abraham makes his mind up that God is a promise keeper. He's willing to trust him with. God's kept every promise He's ever made and He ain't going to quit with you. So we see the significance of Isaac. What is it, preacher, when I'm laying my Isaac on the altar? Well, it's the things that are precious to us that we love in our life. It's our plans and, and our, our, our ideas of how we expect the future to go. And then it is even in those moments trusting God to keep His promises when it looks 
like there's no way. So how did Abraham do that? Well, I see the significance of Isaac. But then in verse 3, I see the surrender of Isaac. It begins all the way back in verse 3. He he doesn't wind up on the altar until we get down to verse number 9. But it began in verse 3. The Bible says this, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Now let me pause right here and let me, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I know people pretty well. And can I tell you this? I know what some of y'all are thinking. Some of you are sitting there thinking, now preacher, I know I need to give this over to the Lord, but there ain't no way that I can do it. You're sitting there and thinking to yourself, I I know that I need to yield this to the Lord. I know God has laid His finger and He's laid claim upon this in my life. But but I know me, preacher. I don't have the strength. I don't have the discipline. I don't have the faith. And there's no way. I'm not even going to go down that road with God because all I do is chicken out on Him. And I wouldn't trust Him when it was all said and done. Well, now Abraham is a man of like passions as we are, just like Elijah was. He's not a superhuman. In fact, in many ways, the Bible emphasizes the the, the frailties and flaws in in Abraham's character. So if Abraham could do it, we could do it. But here's the question. How do we do it like Abraham did? I notice a few steps here. Number one, I want you to notice the commencement of his surrender. The Bible says in verse number three, Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. You ever wonder why he woke up early in the morning? Was Abraham just an early riser? Uh, Maybe they had a long journey to go, but that don't make no sense because they travel three days out before they get there. So why did he start early in the morning? Can I tell you why I think he started early in the morning? He wanted to get up before his flesh woke up. He wanted to set out as early as he could before he had time to sit and stew and think and chicken out. You know the wisdom of Abraham here? He understood you don't ever get there if you don't ever take the first step. You don't ever arrive if you don't ever begin. And the first thing he did right, now I'm sure Abraham sets out. He don't even really know where he's going. But see, he had been following God like that for years. So he understood. He don't have to have everything worked out. But if he lets his flesh bully him, he'll stay at that house. Imagine how heavy that blanket was that morning. Imagine how cold that air felt that morning. Imagine how long that journey looked that morning. But he had the wisdom to understand, I don't have to account for every step, but I do have to take the first step. I would say in your life, uh, if you're not careful, you'll just stand at the edge of the water for the rest of your life, looking over and imagining what God can do, but always too fearful to take the first step because you know somewhere out on the ocean there, there's a storm waiting for you. Can I tell you, hey, listen, you ain't never going to get closer to God. You ain't never going to begin if you don't start. Uh, You can sit around and hem and haw and make excuses and find reasons why next week or next month or next year would be better. You can just go ahead, get up, and head on out serving God. And you know what you'll find? God will meet you. He'll be with you the whole step of the way. I see the commencement of his surrender. But then look at verse 4. The Bible says this, Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. You know what I see here? I see the commencement of his surrender. But there's something that's just sort of almost, it's not skipped over, but it's just said in a breath. In verse number 4 it says, Then on the third day. And I thought about what those three days must have been like. I don't know. Listen, I, I, you talk about awkward. 
Uh, any of you ever had the bad, uh, the, the bad decision, the bad wisdom uh, when you back when you was dating folks to date on somebody or to break up with them before the date was over? You laughed. <laughs> Talk about an awkward ride home. Could you imagine how awkward those three days were? Abraham walks and he knows what he's about to do. And I get a suspicion. We think of Isaac as being a little child at this time. I think you look at the chronology. He, he's probably a young man in his 30s. He wasn't dumb. I think he understood what was about to happen as well. And for three days, despite the awkwardness, despite the peril, despite the arduousness of the journey, you know what they did? They just kept walking. Can I tell you what the secret is in your life to growing with the Lord? It's not to jump. It's not to do a backflip. And it's not to do a cartwheel. It's to just keep walking. See, a lot of us, we start out good. We take that step. And we come down and we, we lay Isaac on the altar. And then we think that's where the work ends. But in actuality, that's where the work begins. We go back to our seat and we go back to our lives. And we have to day by day commit to walking with Him. You say, preacher, I'm going to make mistakes. Sure you are. But it'd be better to make mistakes than it would be to quit because you're afraid of mistakes. You know what you have to do is just keep going, keep surrendering. One of the things that I think has damaged people's spiritual development is this concept that we go to an altar, we lay something down, and when we get up, it's not a problem anymore. But here's the truth of the matter. We're not, we're not going to the altar because of what we're going to leave there. We're going to the altar because of what we're going to get there. We're not going there and laying it down and saying, all right, I don't have any problems anymore. We're coming down and we're saying, now look, this is going to be waiting on me back in my seat when I get there. And I need your strength and I need your faithfulness and I need your help and I need your encouragement. And if you want to grow deeper in the Lord, it's going to take more than just a moment. You're going to have to yield to him. I see the continuance of his surrender. And then I see the confidence of it. How did he keep doing that? Well, verse number 7, it says this. Now Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now listen, I, and if I had my way, and I'm tempted to, we could just shout her out on this next verse. Just for the rest of church. And you could come back tonight and I could finish preaching. It says, Abraham said, My son. God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And we could say it, we could shout about that lamb, couldn't we? We could talk about the lamb that, that Abraham was looking for is the, is the lamb that John saw that day when he said, Behold the lamb of God, which take away the sin of the world. We could talk about the beauty of that statement. God will provide himself a lamb. Does that mean he's going to provide a lamb for himself? Or he's going to provide himself as a lamb? I'd say he's done both, wouldn't you? But can I just look at this through a practical perspective? Abraham don't really have an answer. You, you remember, uh, I know some of y'all do. I know at least two of y'all in this room do. You remember when you when your kids was little and sometimes you'd tell them things and, and, and the truth was somewhere in there. I'm not going to say which two I'm talking about. <laughs> I remember when we was growing up. I'd be sitting in the car, I'd go to the grocery store, we'd be sitting in the car, and, uh, and, and I'd say, Mama, can I listen to the radio? And she'd say, no, you're going to run the battery down. You know how long you have to run a, a radio to run the battery down? She just didn't want no noise. We, we'd be driving, we, I, I used to, I was an insufferable child, and, I, and I'm not much better as a grown man, and when we, when we was going to church, or going to school, we, we, we'd, Mama taught at the Christian school, and I'd, I'd ride with her every day to, 
that she, I finally started driving to school because she wouldn't ride with me anymore. That's how the, I finally started driving to school because we just argued. We just argued. Didn't matter what it was about. We just argued. Just argue about everything. And I remember her saying to me sometimes, son, I need you to be quiet so that I can drive. I can't drive while you're talking. Really, she's just tired of me winning. Abraham don't have a plan here, does he? And he says, my, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. I, I, I'm not saying that he was being dishonest. I'm saying he was being confident. It's not that he knew where that lamb was coming from. It's not that he knew how God was going to do it. But he looked at Isaac and said, son, I don't have any answers. But I know God has set us on this path. And where God leads, where he guides, he provides. And I know that we can trust him for whatever may come down the road. See, part of, if you're like me, my problem is I want the whole plan before I take the first step. I want God to show me all the details. I want God to show me all of the steps and all of the detours and all of the obstacles. But you know, that ain't how faith works. Faith is a matter not of trusting in a good plan, but of trusting in a good God. And saying, I don't have to know everything. I just have to know that God's in it. And if God's in it, I know He will provide. I see the confidence of His surrender. And then I see the completeness of it. Verse number 9. They came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Can I just tell you this? You better not bluff God because He might call your bluff. I see the completeness of it. He was not just just putting on. He wasn't feigning sincerity. He was a million percent legitimate and honest and sincere when he took Isaac up on that mountain. And you know what we find? We find this. God knows who the hypocrites are. He knows. He does. We may not always know, but he always knows. Part of the reason that Abraham was able for God to do this in his life was because he was willing to fully surrender and very often we do this matter, and, and I'm going to address this here in just a moment really more fully, but, but we do this thing where we think all, one of the things we have misconstrued from this passage is the idea that sometimes God just wants us to prove something to Him without legitimately wanting us to go through with it. Can I tell you, what's going on in this passage is not God trying to find out if Abraham is sincere. God already knows whether Abraham's sincere. This isn't about Abraham proving anything to God. This is about Abraham having something proved to himself and him growing and developing as a believer in God. And we've given people the wrong impression that sometimes you'll ask for something and God don't really want that. He just wants you to show a good faith gesture and give it. Now, I'm not going to tell you there aren't times that God tries and tests our faith, not for himself, but for us. But I'm just going to tell you this. If you really want God to work in your life, you don't, listen, it ain't faking it. It ain't feigning it. It ain't pretending it. You have to really give that thing to God. Now, you know why he was willing to put him on the altar on day three? You know why? Because he did it on day one. In Abraham's heart and mind, Isaac was dead before they ever left. And by the same token, according to Abraham's faith, he was already, already resurrected before they ever left too. But he legitimately believed that he was going to have to kill Isaac. I will tell you, the one person that would have never imagined this passage would turn out the way it did was Abraham himself. He thought it more likely 
He thought it more likely that God would raise Isaac from the dead than it was that God would say, never mind, Abraham, I do not want Isaac. That's how sincere he was. And I would say in our lives, it's going to take that level of completeness, comprehensiveness in our surrender. So three things here. We see the significance of Isaac and the surrender of Isaac. But we know how this story ends. It ends with the sparing of Isaac. And I find three things that are that are in this when God intervenes and calls Abraham's name again and, and spares Isaac. Three important truths that we need to understand. Look at verse number 11. When God spared Isaac, what did he do? Verse 11 says, The angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. Can I say, number one, God preserved Isaac. God did not slay Isaac. Now, as we said, we need to be legitimately ready for God to lay on the altar whatever that is that he desired. But I would say this, that Isaac was safer on that altar than he would have been back in the tent at home. God's desire is not just to deprive us of things for some sort of sadistic pleasure. If God has a way to preserve something we love and value that's good for us, He will do it. And I would say this, the safest thing that Abraham could have done with Isaac was commit him to the Lord. Can I just let you in on a little secret? Those things that are precious to you, the worst thing you can do is guard them from God. The best thing you can do is give them to God. Hey, there's been many a young person that's been ruined because mom and daddy tried to be God in their life instead of leading them to God in their life. Hey, listen, been many a marriage has been wrecked because folks tried to play counselor instead of of just praying and asking God to intervene and, and to work in their life and in their home. I would say that the worst thing we can do in our lives is to jealously guard those things, to, to steal them away from God whom they rightly belong to. The best thing you can do with anything in your life is give it to God. If you don't need it, He'll take it away. If you do need it, He'll protect it better than you ever could. Give your children to God. Hey, the safest place that Samuel could have been was when Hannah gave Samuel uh, to God, gave him to the priest, gave him to the temple, gave him to the service of God. What a lesson that is for us. And even beyond children, hey, whatever it is that's precious in your life, if it's your health, if it's your wealth, if it's your time, if it's your talents, if it's your plans, if it's your purposes, whatever it is, the safest thing you can do is say, God, here it is. Do with it whatever you desire. I see that God preserved it. I would say, number two, we see that God provided for it. Verse number 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Now, there's a lot going on here that I wish I could talk about, but time won't permit me. Can I just suffice it to say, Jehovah Jireh, you know what it means? God provides. It means God will provide. God has provided. And Abraham, when he walked away from that, he said, you know, it looked pretty slim for a while. Sure enough, God showed up in time. If you'll trust God with whatever that matter is, I promise you, God will not be late and He will not be lacking. He will do things precisely and exactly how they ought to be done. I see that God provided for it. And finally, and I'm done this morning, look down at verse number 15. The Bible says, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee. And notice this, And in multiplying 
I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Say, preacher, what did God do when he spared Isaac? Well, he preserved him and he provided for him. But I would say, number three, he prospered him. Had Abraham not been willing to yield Isaac up to the Lord, Isaac would have lived his life and he would have had some children. He might have had a good life. He might have had a happy life. But he would have lived a life of, of no consequence, of no significance. He would have died and that would have been the end of it. But because Abraham was willing to yield him up and commit him to God, God did a work that's still being done to this day. When it talks about the sand of the sea, it's talking about God's promises to Israel as an earthly people. When it talks about the stars of heaven, it's talking about those promises in Christ Jesus that not only Jews but Gentiles both are partakers of. In other words, we're sitting here today because Abraham was willing to trust God with Isaac. I would say in your life, the, the greatest potential, the greatest potential for anything in your life is in the hands of God. We think we can do a lot of things to give, and I, and I don't know, I don't know why this is on my heart, but I'm not going to fight against it. Talking about our children, we think we do a lot of things to try to provide for them. I hope we do. We ought to. Can I tell you something? Hey, better than giving them the best education. Better than giving them the best financial standing. Better than giving them the best car they drive or the best clothes they wear. Better than giving them uh, the best extracurricular activities and, and resume that they could have. The greatest thing you can do for them is to put them in the hands of God. I don't, I, I don't begrudge all those other things. If you've got the means, it don't make me angry and it don't make God angry. But I'm just telling you, if you do all that but neglect this, then you've done them a disadvantage. You know, God will do more with your life than you ever could. I'm telling you, man, I, and I'll give myself as a testimony of this. I couldn't, if I, if I had, from the moment I was 15 years old to this day that, that, that we're standing here, if I'd worked a hundred hours a week, if I had saved every bit of money I could, if I had really poured myself into trying to make my life this or make my life that, I could not have gotten where I am today, despite all of my greatest energies. God did more in my life than I have ever done for me. Now why, if we can all testify that He's done that, why can we not trust Him with those matters in our life? I'll tell you this, man. You think you can do something with it. You ought to see God get a hold of it. You think you can do something with your kids. You ought to see when God gets a hold of it. You think you can do something with your finances. You ought to see when God gets a hold of it. Hey, you think you can do something with your service and your testimony and your witness. You ought to see what happens when God gets a hold of it. I'm just telling you, the greatest thing you'll ever do in your life is lay that Isaac on the altar. Trust God with it. And you'll find that God will do more than you ever could. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. I want to invite you right now, before your flesh bullies you, to find a place at this altar. Hey, and bring your Isaac with you. Commit it to the Lord. Trust Him with it. Be willing to, to trust Him. I'm not, I'm not saying you ain't going to have to battle when you get back to your seat. But I'm saying you ain't never going to get there if you don't take the first step. Oh, but preacher, I don't know if I keep my promises. I'm not asking you to keep your promises. I'm asking you to meet God at this altar. Oh, but preacher, I don't know if I've got the discipline. I'm not asking you to have the discipline. I'm asking you to have the courage to take the first step. Won't you find your place at this altar? Why don't you bring that Isaac with you? Won't you say, Lord, here's my life. I'm giving it to you. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.